Oh, words are lightly spoken, said Pierce to Connolly. Maybe a breath of politic words has withered our rose tree, or maybe but a wind that blows across the bitter sea. It needs to be but watered, James Connolly replied, to make the green come out again and spread on every side and shake the blossom from the bud to be the garden's pride. But where can we draw water, said Pierce to Connolly, when all the wells are parched away, Oh, plain as plain can be, there's nothing but our own red blood can make a right rose tree. Once I had a true love, if ever a girl had one. Once I had a true love, a brave lad was he. But one Easter Monday morning, with his gallant comrades, he started away for to set Ireland free. All over Dublin they started away that Easter Monday morning. Young men and old men, teachers and tradesmen, elsewhere too, across the country from Galway to Wexford, townsmen and farmers and landless men, hearts with one purpose alone. And to many, that purpose seemed the very heart of folly. I have met them at close of day, coming with vivid faces from counter or desk among grey 18th-century houses. I have passed with a nod of the head, or polite, meaningless words, or have lingered a while and said polite, meaningless words, and thought before I had gone of a mocking tale or a jibe to please a companion around the fire at the club, being certain that they and I but lived where motley is worn, all changed Changed utterly, a terrible beauty is born. Tonight we are set to remember the birth of that terrible beauty 53 years ago. But rightly to grasp the beauty and the terror our remembering must go back far beyond. For Ireland was heavy with the terror and the beauty for many a century before. Hers was a long travail. The new fires of Easter were lit from an ancient flame. Madian Luan Hinkiche, Lauren Schiefres and Laun, the Valiadern the Kaga con Achti in Vaun. Ach the Hrnimer in the Dimple is the Lassamer in the Seelche, is Hogemer and Kodriachta go heaving us again. The Rusho Hoige Hunnot Hoing, Tillis Jemile Lech, is a Duigo Hunta Ulla near the Elivirsi Weir. Is Gitanlid Brutje Melche. Is Kalyor dar naud nar dimpel. Inishkul na lining, eg eint net hinelo. The fire lit in 1798, which kindled the 1916 fire, was itself, of course, lit from yet an older flame, 
one kept fitfully alive through the long night which followed the breaking of the Gaelic nation a hundred years before. The Porto Brother had seen that breaking and wrote Finis to the Song of Ireland. O'Reilly knew that it was the end of an order which began before Christ was crucified. And yet it was not the end of all. Hope survived against hope. The little flame flickered on in the hidden Ireland, in the minds and hearts of men who seemed beaten indeed into clay, flickered on in the secret scriptures of the poor. For a time, the promise of a Stuart return seemed to make the flame grow brighter, but this was an empty infatuation, and the dark set in again. And then, a hundred years after Limerick, a new and mighty wind blew across the sea from France, and the flickering flame became a fire. It was early, early all in the spring. The birds did whistle and sweetly sing, changing their notes from tree to tree, and the song they sang was Old Ireland Free. The song they sang was Old Ireland Free. To subvert the tyranny of our execrable government, to break the connection with England, the never-failing source of all our political evils, and to assert the independence of my country, these were my objects. To unite the whole people of Ireland, to abolish the memory of all past dissensions, and to substitute the common name of Irishman in place of the denominations of Protestant, Catholic and Dissenter, these were my means. So wrote Theobald Wolfe Tone in the year 1791. And a century and a quarter later, Patrick Pierce was to write, I hold all Irish nationalism to be implicit in these words. The credo is here. I believe in one Irish nation, and that free. To Pierce, Wolfe Tone was the first and greatest of teachers. He was proud to call himself Tone's disciple. To us, with the hindsight of history, Tone is perhaps a precursor, as Tone's rising of 98 foreshadowed 1916. Did I say Tone's rising? Only in the sense that he was its prophet, as Pierce too was a prophet. For in this, above all, 98 was the prophetic sign of 16, that while it seemed a poor, partial, fragmentary thing and a gallant failure, all of Ireland was in it the high heritage of the dead generations and the passionate present with its will to live, the poetry and the hunger and the faith. Old dreamers and young men of a new vision who even in the dark of defeat could see the dawn breaking on the sunlit side of Schliavnaman. Is Kaslam Fenig Bolan Leod, a Ruller Railvortus Nilte Kra. 
is grauder and merlige den of game ding, is aran or veni lo peak nashla. Near honig or majori douche on le hoin, is near omer fein only go in I gat, ach mar a shoal feet trader de voiv ganere, er haven a grainy that leave the man. Tan Frank up fuerch, the lingest last the cran of gare in Ishlishal, is Gorbea here scale a gula reeler airing, is Govekishe on gale bochtorish nechat. Damoholum feni gomir on scale ood, vech mochrisha ho hertrum la lunner skach, vech ne taint dang lessers na hergash ede, er haven a grainy that leave man. And Pierce said that God spoke to Ireland through Tone and through those who, after Tone, have taken up his testimony, that Tone's teaching in theirs is true and great, and that no other teaching as to Ireland has any truth or worthiness at all, is a thing upon which I stake all my mortal and all my immortal hopes. And I ask the men and women of my generation to stake their mortal and immortal hopes with me. In making this appeal, Pierce called upon the witness of a tradition of teaching, that of Tone and of others, by whom he meant Davis, Finton Lawler and Mitchell. He might also have invoked the witness of events, which ever since 98 had at once given the teaching its dynamic and made it part of a people's life. Indeed, in 98 itself, after the rising had been crushed, there were those who carried on the fight. Twenty men from Dublin town, riding on the mountainside, fearless of the Saxon frown, twenty brothers, true and tried. Blood flows in the city streets, there the green is lying low. Here the emerald standard greets eyes alike of friend and foe. A few years later, the standard was raised again by Robert Emmett, of whose death Pierce spoke. The hangman showed the pale head to the people and announced, This is the head of a traitor, Robert Emmett. A traitor? No, but a true man. Oh, my brothers, this was one of the truest men that ever lived. This man was faithful, even unto the ignominy of the gallows, dying that his people might live even as Christ died. Be assured that such a death always means a redemption. Emmett redeemed Ireland from acquiescence in the Union. His attempt was not a failure, but a triumph for that deathless thing we call Irish nationality. It was by Emmett that men remembered Ireland until Davis and Mitchell took up his work again, and 48 handed on the tradition to 67, and from 67, we receive the tradition unbroken. This is what we mean when we speak of the Fenian faith, a faith that upheld the believing remnant through difficult days. Those who believed still, in defeat, in poverty, in exile, that the poet's word would prevail. Beg ede fos, eg
The little black rose shall be red at last. What made it black but the March wind dry? And the tear of the widow that fell on it fast? It shall redden the hills when June is nigh. The silk of the kind shall rest at last. What drove her forth but the dragonfly? In the golden vale she shall feed full fast with her mild gold horn and slow dark eye. The wounded wood dove lies dead at last. The pine long bleeding, it shall not die. This song is secret. Mine ear it passed in a wind or a plain at Athenry. A secret song, a secret scripture, a secret society of men pledged by oath to freedom. In these, the core of the faith, the heart of the tradition were kept down to the eve of the Easter rising. But beyond this, the ferment of freedom was working through the whole nation. Its potential was first realized in the great movement which won Catholic emancipation, which went on to become the movement for repeal of the Union led in both phases by Daniel O'Connell, a political strategist of extraordinary ability, a rhetorician of almost superhuman power. Thus Pierce on O'Connell. To him, of course, Davis was the more attractive figure, as he was immeasurably the more significant thinker. But the gift of leadership he did grant him. And it surely was O'Connell's greatest achievement that he taught the people the use of political weapons and made them a force to be reckoned with in political terms. His tragedy was that he did not see, or preferred not to see, the strength of that force that he had formed. It was left to a later leader, one in background not nearly as close to the national ethos, but in instinct far closer and far surer of touch. It was left to Charles Stuart Parnell to see the implications of what O'Connell began. It is given to none of us to forecast the future, and just as it is impossible for us to say in what way or by what means the national question may be settled, in what way full justice may be done to Ireland, so it is impossible for us to say to what extent that justice should be done. We cannot ask for less, we cannot under the British Constitution ask for more than the restitution of Grattan's Parliament, but no man has a right to fix the boundary of the march of a nation. No man has a right to say, Thus far shalt thou go, and no further. But in the emptiness that followed Parnell's fall, none of his party men, friend or foe, seized on the power of his word. The political vacuum was filled in time by a new force. The authentic heirs to the positive dynamic element in 19th century Irish politics were the men who translated the separatist idea into a political programme, the men of Sinn Féin. The Fenian faith, the ferment of freedom working through the people, these made the Easter Rising possible, made it perhaps inevitable. But not these alone made 1916. Again we return to tone. Our independence must be had at all hazards. If the men of property will not support us, they must fall. We can support ourselves by the aid of that numerous and respectable class of the community the men of no property. In this glorious appeal to Caesar, modern Irish democracy has its origin. 
thus once again Pierce on Tone. And Tone's declaration was undoubtedly remarkable for its time. The fuller working out of the social meaning of democracy and revolution came half a century later from another of Pierce's four masters, James Finton Lawler. To him, the aim was clear. Ireland her own. Ireland her own and all therein, from the sod to the sky, to have and to hold from God alone who gave it, to have and to hold to them and their heirs forever, without suit or service, faith or fealty, rent or render to any power under heaven. Not to repeal the union then, but the conquest. Not to resume or restore an old constitution, but found a new nation and raise up a free people, and strong as well as free, and secure as well as strong, based on a peasantry rooted like rocks in the soil of the land. And to make it clearer still? The principle I state and mean to stand upon is this, that the entire ownership of Ireland is rooted of right in the people of Ireland, that they and none but they are the landowners and lawmakers of this island, that all laws are null and void not made by them, and all titles to land invalid, not conferred or confirmed by them, and that this full right of ownership may and ought to be asserted by any and all means which God has put in the power of man. And as he saw it, history was on his side. Mark the words of this prophecy. The principle I propound goes to the foundations of Europe, and sooner or later will cause Europe to outrise. Mankind will yet be the masters of the earth, the right of the people to make the laws. This produced the first great modern earthquake. The right of the people to own the land. This will produce the next. Finton Lawler spoke indeed with the voice of prophecy for Europe as for Ireland. The Irish land struggle with its bitterness, its suffering, its hard-won gains, gave the whole national movement for freedom an earthy reality and a rooted strength which saved it from the pitfalls of romance. It gave it a social consciousness and conscience, which became articulate with James Connolly. The Irish question is a social question. The whole age-long fight of the Irish people against their oppressors resolves itself in the last analysis into a fight for the mastery of the means of life, the sources of production in Ireland. Yet, plain as this is to us today, it is undeniable that for 200 years at least, all Irish political movements ignored this fact and were conducted by men who did not look below the political surface. These men, to arouse the passions of the people, invoked the memory of social wrongs, such as evictions and famines, but for these wrongs proposed only political remedies, such as changes in taxation or transference of the seat of government from one country to another. Hence, they accomplished nothing, because the political remedies proposed were unrelated to the social subjection at the root of the matter. The revolutionists of the past were wiser. The Irish socialists are wiser today. In their movement, the North and the South will again clasp hands. Again will it be demonstrated, as in 98, that the pressure of a common exploitation can make enthusiastic rebels out of a Protestant working class, earnest champions of civil and religious liberty out of Catholics, and out of both a united social democracy. 
all the children of the nation would be the equal care of the men of Easter week. We have spoken of freedom and faith in freedom, of the growth of political maturity, of insurrections suppressed but not extinguished, of the social dimension of revolution, but there is something more to add, something central to our remembering and our understanding of what we remember. Once more, in Pierce's words, I have said again and again that when the Gaelic League was founded in 1893, the Irish Revolution began. When we speak of the necessity for de-anglicising the Irish nation, we mean it not as a protest against imitating what is best in the English people, for that would be absurd, but rather to show the folly of neglecting what is Irish and hastening to adopt pell-mell and indiscriminately everything that is English simply because it is English. Douglas Hyde spoke of the de-anglicisation of Ireland. One might equally well speak of the restoration of Ireland's soul or mind or psyche. Whatever had been gained, however strong the faith and hope of those who worked for freedom for the nation, the nation itself was in danger of death. What the battle-axe of the Dane, the sword of the Norman, the wile of the Saxon were unable to perform, we have accomplished ourselves. We have at last broken the continuity of Irish life, and just at the moment when the Celtic race is presumably about to largely recover possession of its own country, it finds itself deprived and stripped of its Celtic characteristics, cut off from the past, yet scarcely in touch with the present. It has lost, since the beginning of this century, almost all that connected it with the era of Cúhollán and of Ossian, that connected it with the Christianizers of Europe. It has lost all that they had in language, traditions, music, genius and ideas. Just when we should be starting to build up anew the Irish race and Gaelic nation, as within our own recollections Greece has been built up anew, we find ourselves despoiled of the bricks of nationality. The old bricks that lasted 1800 years destroyed, we must now set to make new ones, if we can, on other ground and of other clay. Imagine for a moment the restoration of a German-speaking Greece. Pierce, in his pamphlets, in the Gaelic League paper on Clee of Sullish, in his own journal on Barbua, in his teaching in St. Enders, made it abundantly clear that in this he and Hyde were of one mind. What was at stake was the national identity. I believe that there is a spiritual tradition which is the soul of Ireland, the thing which makes Ireland a living nation, and that there is such a spiritual tradition corresponding to every true nationality. Freedom is a condition which can be lost and won and lost again. Nationality is a life which, if once lost, can never be recovered. A nation is a stubborn thing, very hard to kill, but a dead nation does not come back to life any more than a dead man. Had the last repository of the Gaelic tradition the last unconquered gale died. The Irish nation was no more. Any free state that might thereafter be erected in Ireland, whatever it might call itself, would certainly not be the historic Irish nation. Hence, the language which is the main repository of Irish life, the folklore, 
the music, the art, the social customs must be preserved. And Pierce calls another of his masters, Thomas Davis, to witness. The language of a nation's youth is the only free and full speech for its manhood and for its age. And when the language of its cradle goes, itself craves a tomb. This was the belief that the men and women of the Gaelic League brought to the Easter Rising. So at last, in time's fullness, all came together. The Fenian faith which blazed through the eyes of Tom Clark and touched a thousand hearts at O'Donovan Ross's grave. The schooling in the politics of self-reliance that was the message of Sinn Féin. The hunger-schooled passion of the risen people of Dublin that forged the citizen army. The volunteers, the Fianna boys and Common Naman the young men and women from the Gaelic League, I am the Abbey Theatre. Come gather round me players all, come praise 1916, those from the pit and gallery or from the painted scene that fought in the post office or round the city hall, praise every man that came again, praise every man that fell, from mountain to mountain ride the fierce horsemen. Who was the first man shot that day? The player Connolly, close to the city hall he died, carriage and voice had he. He lacked those years that go with skill, but later might have been a famous, a brilliant figure before the painted scene. From mountain to mountain ride the fierce horsemen. Some had no thought of victory, but had gone out to die, that Ireland's mind be greater, her heart mount up on high. And yet, who knows what's yet to come? For Patrick Pierce had said that in every generation must Ireland's blood be shed. From mountain to mountain ride the fierce horsemen. The man of the Fenian generation who joined the young men on Easter Monday had long been an apostle of this teaching. His pulpit was his little shop near the Parnell Monument. There were people who made it a rule to traverse the entire city a couple of times a week to give their small custom in newspapers and tobaccos to the very little man of that very little shop. Long ago he had paid dearly for his idea of Ireland, 
and perhaps he bore traces of it after all the years and all the changes of place and of living conditions that his shifting life had brought him. But he remained steadfast in his ideal, and not merely in that desire, but also in hope and faith. Often he praised me as he handed me my packet of Banba or my Cork Weekly Examiner. He commented on them as signs of the times. In my day, he said more than once, we really didn't understand what nationality meant. We never thought of industries, of the language, or of foreign relations, except under the vague idea of a nation among the nations of the world. But the young men today, they understand. It's a better generation, really, more thoughtful, more sure of its ground. Already, he told me, in the first year of his happy return to Ireland, he had welcomed the new signs. Year by year, he'd watched them develop. He'd seen the young lads grow up strong and determined and resourceful. They haunted his little place, leaning over the counter by the hour in the evenings and watching the little man trying desperately at times to palm off the penny R3 cigarettes instead of the woodbine upon some obdurate English soldier. And when rarely he succeeded in his feat, he would smile quaintly as he tossed the penny into the till. He was always a good man for Irish industries. The wiry little figure, the sunken cheeks, the very quick and powerful eye conveyed an impression of staunch resolution. All the years and all the troubles had been unable to make him care for ease, rest, or safety. Those that knew him felt quite sure that he could always be counted on to throw himself into the gap of danger wherever he saw work being done for Ireland. If he had been 80 and heard suddenly that the sword had been drawn, he would have gone out at once to die grimly in the onset. A large part of the praise for the better understanding of Ireland's conditions and needs he gave to the Irish language movement. He knew no Irish himself, but I've heard him regret the lack. He believed in the language as he believed in history teaching. A very intelligent man, he really understood the needs of the people. He knew, I've heard him say it in so many words, that in these reading days the only stable foundation for an Irish nation is an Irish education. of Thomas Clark, which we heard a moment ago, was from Memories of the Dead, a collection of brief personal portraits of some of the 1916 men, published under the pseudonym Martin Daly. Martin Daly was, in fact, Stephen McKenna, the distinguished translator of Plotinus, who, like many another Irish intellectual of his time, was touched by the Gaelic revival and deeply moved by the events of 1916. Here is part of his memoir of Eamon Kant. Years ago, when I first met Eamon Kant, his eyes and brow at once told me of a quite peculiar personality. Something in the tranquil masterfulness of his pose and of his motion, some depth in his quiet smile, some singular music in the soft voice, something rare in the entire presence of the man, made me aware that he was moved by a quite peculiar depth of principle that had come to possess him body and soul and would lead him probably to some great act, some sacrifice or achievement not easily to be forgotten. I saw, I maintain it unashamed, I saw destiny marked on that gentle brooding face, that profound forehead with something of the Bismarck or old Salisbury grandeur of gravity. 
I would venture the notion that of all those whom I personally knew of the men that died in that year 1916, Eamon Kant was incomparably the most religious spirit. I think he brooded mystically over something that the others probably felt as passionately or more passionately, but he with a depth of ruminated conviction quite rare in the world. In all the others, an enemy might assert, not truthfully, but with a catching appearance of truth, that there was something a trifle hysterical or histrionic. Of Eamon, that could never have been said, not for one moment, nor imagined. He was born to the remote tranquillity of the harvest moon. I was delighted beyond measure when an eager gay youth, all fire and rattle, but all bravery and devotion also, one who had served under Eamon throughout that hot and agonized week, told me that to him also his chief had been, then and for long before, the very exemplar of knightly and religious devotion to Ireland. Tall, handsome, always grave, coolly self-possessed always, as far as I knew him, so gentle that one almost said benignant, he faced the world with a commanding presence. The most incongruous things he was able to do with a stately ease and dignity that made them seem the most natural and fitting in the world. One of my cherished memories is of Eamon Kant piping at the ancient concert rooms a short time before the rebellion. There had been eloquent, haranguing, fiery response from the hall, the thrill of an Ireland resurgent to virile plans and passionate hopes. During an interval, princely Eamon rose before the people, gathered his bags and tubes under his wing, tuned, played. And even then, not foreseeing even dimly how soon the desperate effort, the tragic end, was coming, even then I felt very sharply, like a knife slashing between the bones, that he stood in some quite rare way as the symbol of the times. So gravely, so religiously piping, piping as it were without enthusiasm, as a duty, as a solemn declaration of faith, almost ritually, he appeared before my mind as the grave ghost of the old Ireland rising to haunt the new and to awe it into homage and obedience. I don't know whether Eamon piped well that night or whether he ever could pipe well. I know only that long ago he lamented humorously the tragedy it was in one's life to take up the crustiest and most personally unbiddable of instruments. But I know that that solemnest of all Irish pipers stands and will long stand before my mind like some colossal work of sculpture, some Mestrovich figure full of the entire meaning of a racial existence. This is but one example of the characteristic impression Eamon must have made wherever there was not a blind hate of his dominant ideas. It was the voice of the man's deepest nature that spoke out in his least action, the magic of the mystic life, which, whether he would himself allow it or not, was his inner, real being. It was the effluence of an absorbed religious spirit.
When we remember the men of Easter week, let us not think only of the men who made the rising. As Stephen McKenna wrote, Sheehy Skeffington's death in the Easter week may be thought of as an accident. He met a criminal lunatic, and that was the end of it. But that is not all there is to say about Francis Sheehy Skeffington. It was often said of him that he was the one man in Ireland who was afraid of nothing, not even of isolation, odium or ridicule. He had no selfish dignity. He found his true dignity in working as the moment dictated for the causes which had caught his brain or heart. He didn't care what he did or how he appeared or how he was mocked at. Scoffing, hisses, silent, shoulder-shrugging contempt, these were nothing to him, unless perhaps the imp of mischief in him welcomed them. At any rate, they never for one moment moved him from his plans, nor even, I'm sure, gave him a moment's pause in the most secret thought of his least happy hour. He was always good-humoured before the world. Probably no one ever saw him angry. And yet he must have nearly always had his way. Even in very small matters he was unconquerable. I remember once after a generous supper at his place, desiring with several others to consume a harmless cigarette. And Sheehy Skeffington was anti-many things, and among others, very peculiarly, anti-tobacco. He didn't allow the vice within the sacred precincts of his house. We rebelled, we implored him, we reviled him. I'm afraid it's quite impossible, he persisted, and so it proved. Those of us that must yield to the vile habit must go forth and pollute the undefended streets. And so we did, three parts ashamed to one part satisfied, and so returned to the virtuous home. None of us were angry with she, rather with ourselves. I remember that when, like prodigal sons, we returned that evening, we found an intellectual feast spread for us, the fatted calf of the most variously exciting conversations. Folding doors had been flung back, and the whole place, but for the books that lined the walls and stood about on sentry duty in stands among the chairs, suggested a public meeting. It had filled up during our truancy with as motley a company as could probably be found within four walls. Priests, poets, turbaned Indian ascetics, vegetarians, suffragists, theosophists, aldermen, smaller traders, artists, journalists, and I don't know what besides from among the crafts and classes and pursuits that variegate this world of ours. She, Skeffington, gathered curiosities round him, people whom the average conventional dullard thinks of as queer fry. He hunted the idea. It didn't matter, of course, one jot whether it was acceptable to his own mind or the very reverse. He lived, apart from his civic furies, by tasting ideas. And anyone, duke or dustman, learned or scarcely educated, was welcome to the man of that house if only they could bring something fresh or merely something vigorously expressed to the discussion in which he delighted. He was the very reverse of dogmatic. He didn't seek to guide the conversation. He had the openest mind that it's possible to conceive, though he was commonly thought of as the man of all the fads. His friends were by no means chosen from those that shared his ideas. I think he judged it well to refresh his own feeling and perhaps his own power of public advocacy by listening to every point of view. It was, of course, an injustice to call his theories and devotions fads. Fads come by imitation. Skeffington's conduct was always dictated by personal thought and was as often quite peculiar to himself as it was popular or created in any clique. He cared only for the truth and the right as he saw them. All the rest was to him mere incident of no importance. Had he lived to see an Irish Parliament at work, he would certainly have been in it and would have left 
Through it, a deep dint on the shape and make of Ireland. It's notable that at one time he was quite opposed to the Irish language movement. I myself argued it with him time and time again and never made any impression on him. But at the end, he was convinced by his own mental processes. And the desk of this accomplished journalist and vehement man of practical politics was found, I am assured, to contain baby notes on Irish grammar of pronunciation, the traces of his belated first agonies on the Gaelic road. This was a gallant, good man, an immensely valuable personality. It is reported that as he stood before the firing party in Portobello, he remarked prophetically, You people will soon discover that you are making a great mistake. His execution was indeed a great mistake to that judge in a hurry and remains a great loss to Ireland. No green and poisonous laurel wreath shall shade his brow who dealt no death in any strife. Crown him with olive who was not afraid to join the desolate unarmed ranks of life. Who did not fear to die, yet feared to slay. A leader in the war that shall end war. Unarmed he stood in ruthless empire's way. Unarmed he stands on Acheron's lost shore. Yet not alone, nor all unrecognized, for at his side does that scorned dreamer stand who in the olive garden agonized, whose kingdom yet shall come in every land, when driven men who fight and kill to order shall let all their weapons fall and knows that kindly freedom of the will that holds no other human will in thrall. But we talked at large before the sixteen men were shot. But who can talk of give and take, what should be and what not, while those dead men are loitering there to stir the boiling pot? You say that we should still the land till Germany's overcome. But who is there to argue that now Pierce is deaf and dumb, and is their logic to outweigh McDonough's bony thumb? 
How could you dream they'd listen, that have an ear alone for those new comrades they have found, Lord Edward and Wolf Tone, or meddle with our give and take that converse bone to bone? Converse bone to bone, said Yeats. Macdonough's bony thumb, he said. As Stephen McKenna recalls, there was flesh and blood and bone in Macdonough's writing and talking. Macdonough's verse reveals an inner life singularly intense, at times almost tortured. But not many men of this scholarly, thoughtful order showed the world a gayer face. He was the most genial of good comrades. A radiating smile, the cheeriest voice, a simple, ever-ready cordiality, an utter absence of either the pose or the shy reserve looking like pose that often accompany the sensitive emotional temperament. He had a quick humour that disdained nothing of the common incidents of life, a rattling talkativeness that had no silly concern about the relative rank of conversation subjects. This was the outward man. This, and a very attractive, though not an imposing presence, a quick eye beaming friendly goodwill to all the world, handsome features, a pleasant voice, a fluent, easy abundance of the best sort of natural, unaffected Irish that smacked neither of the freshly picked up and worked off idioms of the classroom, nor of the graves of the old dead authors. Just such an Irish as one would imagine the conversation of literary circles would be if our benighted lazy intelligentsia and our hopelessly unimaginative aristocracy had not ignored the language. I've heard McDonough talk for an hour at a time on Latin literature, with much illustration from Catullus, a pet theme of his thought and talk. And I've wished that those could hear him who, in grotesque ignorance or in lying malice, assert that the Irish of so much poetry is fit only for discussing the feeding of pigs and the promise of cows. The difference, of course, was that he knew the language. The others knew merely a smattering of history. They, judging Ireland and the Irish people most unhistorically by other countries and by less intelligent and inveterately artistic races, jumped to the conclusion that a nation so persecuted and poverty-stricken must have long lost the tradition of respect for intellectual things, for the great world of beauty, for the graces of poetry, the expression of emotion, the consideration of general ideas. Macdonough, ranging freely over Irish from the oldest literature to the last pennyworth of the Gaelic League productions, had found the language pliable in his hands, able to convey every idea, to carry all his meaning to the simple by the turf fires, while it delighted those able to identify, beneath the copious ease of today's speech, the great stream of Irish expression continuous throughout the long centuries of thoughtful and artistic cultivation. I have often wished that Macdonough had been able to give himself wholeheartedly or wholehandedly to writing in Irish. His work, I think, would have been on the whole more serviceable to the needs of the language than that of perhaps any of his contemporaries. It was a promising combination, this. The professional scholar, young but squarely set on the right way of erudition, and the man of wide popular interests, quickly responsive to every call of our time. He would never have been a mere grammarian, dead from the brain down. His interests were many, his intellectual curiosity immeasurable. His work in the Irish would naturally have been just what would have been at present most valuable to us, the wide ranging over life and literature by a man of a sensitive mind nourished on the best thinking and writing of the past and present, acquainted with the near and with the far, not narrowly academic, not disdainful, but intensely human and practical always. 
Supposing Ireland to have been reasonably well established politically in McDonough's budding time, suffering only from such ills as beset every state, however free to work out its own way, and so not making intensely personal demands for practical action, McDonough's life would almost certainly have been consecrated to literature and to scholarship. He would have been, what indeed he had already begun to be, a notable critic and essayist, and a poet at his hours. Sing of the Orahala, do not deny his right. Sing a the before the name. Allow that he, despite all those learned historians, established it for good. He wrote out that word himself, he christened himself with blood. How goes the weather? Sing of the Orahala, that had such little sense, he told Pierce and Connolly, he'd gone to great expense keeping all the Kerry men out of that crazy fight, that he might be there himself had travelled half the night. How goes the weather? Am I such a craven that I should not get the word, but for what some travelling man had heard I had not heard? Then on Pierce and Connolly he fixed a bitter look, because I helped to wind the clock, I come to hear it strike. How goes the weather? What remains to sing about? But of the death he met stretched under a doorway somewhere off Henry Street. They that found him found upon the door above his head. Here died the O'Rahilly, R.I.P. writ in blood. How goes the weather? Of this man the noble O'Rahilly, who died somewhere off Henry Street, in Moor Lane, to be precise. McKenna writes, O'Rahilly's fate caught at once at the popular imagination. Scarcely had it become known when there was a camellia to his memory, and it sung by old and young all over Dublin and the suburbs. How often after dark have I not heard the all-revealing line, Down in Muir's Lane and gone cold at the suggestion it carried. I think the fires were still burning in O'Connell Street when one of the evening papers, probably the Herald, printed a long and grateful account by a British soldier, a prisoner in the post office, of O'Rahilly's courteous and kindly ministrations to himself and the other chance victims of that week. It was generally known, too, that O'Rahilly's own judgment did not, under the crushing circumstances, approve of the rising, and that he had joined in only because as he's reported to have said, he had helped to wind up the clock and was bound in order to stand by and hear it strike. The metaphor was not good, and perhaps the story is a story and nothing more, but the pith of the saying was quite in the character of the man, an honourable and gallant gentleman, if ever such a being walked the earth. The O'Rahilly legend will probably grow, but grow its fastest and fullest, it will scarcely come up to the quality of the man. There was something knightly about O'Rahilly, and something very deep, a man, too, of the kindest com comradeship, the friendliest hand grip. He had the sunniest smile. He joked incessantly and yet could turn grim and pale at one word recalling Ireland's state and need. Hearts with one purpose alone 
through summer and winter seem enchanted to a stone to trouble the living stream. The horse that comes from the road, the rider, the birds that range from cloud to tumbling cloud, minute by minute they change. A shadow of cloud on the stream changes minute by minute. A horse hoof slides on the brim, and a horse plashes within it. The long-legged moor-hens dive, and hens to moor-cocks call. Minute by minute they live, the stones in the midst of all. I saw Pierce on the Easter Monday several times, and felt sad for him. This was to have been, as indeed it truly proved, the great culmination of his life. But in its outer circumstances, it must have been a sorry disappointment to him. During that morning, he appeared again and again under the portico of the post office and on O'Connell Street. Very pale he was, very cold of face, as he scanned the crowd, the indifferent-seeming crowd that at times and in places warmed only to show positive hostility. I saw him at about noon, I think, read the proclamation of the Irish Republic. But for once, his magnetism had left him. The response was chilling. A few thin, perfunctory cheers. No direct hostility just then, but no enthusiasm whatever. The people were evidently quite unprepared, quite unwilling to see in the uniformed figure, whose burning words had thrilled them again and again elsewhere, a person of significance to the country. A chill must have gone to his heart. No doubt whatever, but that his will held staunch and stalwart. But this dismal reception of the astonishing order of the day was not what he had dreamed of when in many an hour of fevered passion and many a careful weaving of plan he had rehearsed the act, the act I foresee and the death before me. For nacht de chanachu a oile na hoile is de gallus mohul er aglige staning. De gulus de gjole winne ne binne is de gunus mochlus er aglige glichin. De vlasjes de veile wieltje ne mieltje is de groes mochri er agle ma wieltje. De gallus mohul is mochlus de gunus De groes mochri is ma wiende woches. De hoges mochul er an ashling de chomus. Is er an rood so room maig de hoges. De hoges mochnoosh er an rood so room. Er an nief de chiem. Is er an maas de jood. Here's to you. Men I never met, but hope to meet behind the veil, thronged on some starry parapet that looks down upon Innisfail, and see the confluence of dreams that clash together in our night, one river born of many streams, roll in one blaze of blinding light. Our part now to remember name on name. 
McDonough and McBride, Connolly and Pierce, Plunkett and Kent, McDiarmidow and Clark, and O'Reilly, and all the brave men who started away. His bandolier around him, his bright bayonet shining, his short service rifle a beauty to see. There was joy in his eyes, though he left me behind him and started away for to set Ireland free. Thank you.